Good day, everyone. My name is Peter Spotgitter, and I'm talking to my colleague Bronwyn Howell of the Institute for Technology and Network Economics, www.itne.eu, in our podcast Call and Chain. And today we're chatting about social media editing and censorship. Uh, good day, Bronwyn, and welcome. Good day, Pietrus. So, Bronwyn, uh, you recently wrote a blog of, for the American Enterprise Institute on the topic. Uh, do you want to perhaps tell us something about this? I should say that we are recording this in the middle of February 2021, and lots of things have been happening in this area. So, please tell us something about it. Right. Well, the, the blog was motivated by the um, the apparent deplatforming, deregistering or removal of content going on on social media in the wake of the American presidential election and handover, where, for example, Twitter de um, removed or closed down um, Donald Trump's account, where we've seen platforms like Instagram um, removing the, the account and, and blocking the posts of uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. And um, issues, for example, the Great Barrington Declaration web page on Facebook was edited and unpublished because it was felt that the posts that, that were put up by the Great Barrington Declarations people were um, breached a very loosely defined community standards. So there's clearly some extensive editing going on within the various social media of particular sorts of content. So it's it's interesting just to explore what's happening and why, whether they are legally able to do it, whether they are obligated to do it for other reasons and what those might be, and just thinking through what the implications of that might be long term. So this depends, of course, on the country because all law is legal, all law is local, I mean. Um, and if I remember correctly, uh, this all started in my uh, perception a few years ago in Germany when uh, the German government informed the social networks that they would be held to account for people publishing uh, statements that are illegal in Germany. And uh, this started out with Facebook having a couple of thousand of censors in Germany sitting in an office reading social media posts. And I understand that that has been expanded considerably. So we're actually talking in some sense mainly about the United States, first of all, and then also about other countries. Um, and the United States has also been where a lot of this action has been. So I don't think that they have been very active at censoring uh, people outside the United States for political reasons. Although here in South Africa, uh, there has now been uh, just this week, a big wave of Twitter closing accounts of so-called social media influencers. So these are people who basically promote uh, material from their Twitter accounts commercially. Uh, there have been a lot of complaints about that. I don't think it's really related to the political stuff, but uh, it certainly seems to be in the air. So uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you see this happening 
and how it ties up to the markets and the future for social media. Well, I think this is there's a long-standing issue about what can and can't be broadcast on various media. We've had to deal with this across time with the traditional media, with print, with radio, with television. There's issues about what is acceptable and what isn't, what can be can be broadcast and what can't, who's responsible for it and why. And that's regardless of where we've been in time, right back to the first newspapers in the 1700s had to face this issue as well. On the one hand, we've got the right to free speech, which is either codified in constitutions like it is in the First Amendment of the United States, or as in New Zealand, the right to freedom of speech and the ability to hold beliefs and express them is an article in New Zealand, New Zealand's Bill of Rights, which basically says that if an individual has a view, then they are entitled to have to express that view with only some very limited restrictions on where that view might be held to be problematic or offensive, in which case the broadcasting of that view becomes an offence. So that's how, for example, things like pornography are dealt with. If we go back to March 2019 with the mosque shootings in Christchurch, there were issues that were arose out of that because the gunman broadcast his shooting spree live on Facebook. And that was deemed to be an offensive piece of social media content. And voluntarily, the ISPs in New Zealand moved to block the transmission of that piece of content before any intervention was made from any legal perspective. But out of that came the Christchurch call, where a number of governments came together to have some ways forward for thinking about how they might be able to regulate the content that could or couldn't be available online. So on the one hand, outside of the US environment, we have governments looking at starting to impose some rules about what can or can't be put up on these social media. On the other hand, the US has stood outside that by actually continuing to rely on its existing provisions with the Constitution and its other legal provisions to allow that to happen. So that's the question we've got. But the other part of it is also looking at the social debate about what's acceptable and what's not, and who gets to decide what's acceptable and what's not, and whether it's published or whether it's not. So it's pretty clear, is it not, that uh, Twitter was under no legal obligation to cancel the account of Donald Trump. And there was no possible legal problem uh, arising from keeping it open, though. So this is a bit different from the case with newspapers, because uh, this is just voluntary. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. In the US context, there is no obligation for any platform to to uh, to Basically, in the United States, under the Constitution, the First Amendment only binds the only binds the state. So, so these um, the House of Representatives, the Senate can't pass laws. The federal government can't pass laws to require 
the editing out of content if that infringes on an individual's right to be able to express their views. So to the extent that the platforms made decisions to deplatform Trump or to take down the um, Great Barrington material, they're entirely within their legal rights to do it because they're private companies, private operators, and quite entitled to take whatever approach they like to their editorial policy. There's no mandate that they should have to post or carry things that their editorial team chooses them not to carry, which is exactly like what we see with newspapers, because to, yes. to the large extent they are private firms that are able to make their own editorial choices. The difference with newspapers, though, is generally in most countries there's some sort of agreement or press code which assumes that they'll do their best to actually ensure that there's balanced coverage of an issue. So when they choose what's in and what's off or in or out of their newspaper or in or out of their blog site or whatever, they've got an obligation on them as journalists to give you know, roughly fair coverage to both sides of a point. And that's what's allowed the traditional media to, in the past, carry out their activities as the fourth estate in holding truth to power. And that agreement to keep the content balanced has been quite important in them being able to maintain that relatively powerful position. What is not so clear is whether there should be codes or some rules or something that would require social media to also act similarly in order to ensure that whatever they're carrying is balanced and fair. Yes. So, if so we far, use... we haven't gone down that path. The Christchurch call is not about the issue of balance. It's about the issue of, of forcing co content that might be offensive to somebody to be taken down. And to the extent that we've seen the US platforms responding, they have responded by taking down content that appears to be offensive or upsetting to certain constituencies of their clientele. Sure. So if we stick to the United States for the moment, um, there is a distinction between a publisher and a distributor of content. So traditionally, that would be the difference between a newspaper that's fully responsible for its content and a bookshop. So a bookshop is not, I think, legally liable for the content of the books that it sells. So um, in this sense, the Internet companies are regarded as more akin to a bookstore than to a newspaper. And a big part of this is so-called Section 230 of the strangely named Communications Decency Act of 1996, which was a good part, good part of the legislation that somehow also contained some very dubious parts that didn't hold up, if I remember correctly. So Section 230, if I remember, uh, clearly says that the Internet uh, platforms are not publishers and therefore not legally liable for the content on them. Um, and this is still in place and somehow not particularly popular among a broad swathe of American politicians. Uh, do I understand that correctly? 
That is absolutely correct. Of course, this was Section 230 was what actually allowed the internet to get going in the first place, because what it meant was that the people who carried the traffic were not responsible for the content of what was in that traffic. The whole context of the internet when it began was it was people at the end, at the at the ends of the network, the peripheries, who were the creators and owners and sharers of the content with people at the other ends of the network and the pipes that sat in between were just the conduits of that. And there's clear separation in section 230 which said the pipes are not conduits of that, they're not publishers of that information, they are just conduits of it. So the argument is that if perhaps if you think of mail, if you had the mail service responsible for the content of what was in the letters, then you wouldn't have people posting letters and you'd never actually get the communications going. So what Section 230 did was it removed the liability of the postman for the content that was in the post. And if we sure. think about what happens on social media, at the end of the pipe, we have the person creating the content, and at the other end of the pipe, we've got the person consuming it. What sits in the middle, if we think of the social media platforms, they are just postmen. They are taking messages and, and transmitting them to other people. They're not broadcasters in the sense of, say, a television network, that makes editorial decisions and curates the content that's spread out. Or a newspaper, which has letters to the editor where people can vent their spleen, but the editorial team can choose to edit those before they publish them. Sure. Or they can refuse to publish a letter if they don't like what's in it. Whereas under the original Section 230, the idea was that all content was equal. It didn't matter who created it or who read it. All of it was going to be available to be spread about and we would have this wonderful free speech utopia where all views could be shared. And in a sense, that broke down the monopoly power or the market power that was held by the traditional publishers to be able to edit those views and have them in the debate. So if we think about, say, election campaigns before the internet, all the, the only messages came across in the, the newspapers and the television and everyone saw the same thing. It was curated and edited and put out that way. In a modern election now, anyone can have a view on anything, they can post it and it's available to be seen by those who wish to see it. So if we cast our minds back to the 1990s, uh, of course, the social networks as we know them today did not exist. So this Section 230 was uh, intended probably to apply more to companies who were doing email, maybe bulletin boards, because at the time I think CompuServe still existed, which was a message board for those uh, listeners who don't know, a kind of mess message board or curated internet type service. Um, and uh, they were also involved in litigation on various counts prior to Section 230 and the Communications Decency Act coming into law. Um, and uh, there was a case, uh, I've just looked it up quickly, in 1991 in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York, uh, which according to Wikipedia held that internet service providers are not subject to uh, 
uh, sorry, were subject to traditional defamation law. Um, and, and this hinged somehow exactly on what you said, whether they edited or reviewed the content. So this becomes problematic, does it not, in terms of Section 230, if the social media publishers are actually now reviewing or taking some uh, responsibility for the content. Um, how do you see that? Absolutely. That is precisely the point. If they're going to choose to start editing and taking down or including what they want or not, or, or editing what's seen in their various platforms, then they're ceasing to be those dumb pipes, effectively, of the internet world. They are much more like newspapers. They are curators of content. They're making those editorial decisions and they should be held to account for those decisions that they make. And so that's to some extent, sorry, to some extent, uh, making those kinds of decisions is part of their business model. So they are choosing for you what you get to see. So this might include the tweets of Donald Trump or not, depending on what their algorithms decide. So even before they banned him, they were deciding on whether you're going to see his tweets or not. Well, they do make some choices like that. Or it's, I mean, if you trawled far enough, you could find other things as well. It's a matter of what prioritizes. And that's part of what makes search successful. But it's also at the at the edge of things, it's also thinking about what their business model is doing. Now, if you're going to make those editorial decisions and the consumer or the people who can post content and wish to read content are aware of how those decisions are made, that's transparent, then people can self-select to the sort of editing preferences that they like, which is in effect what people do with newspapers. We have newspapers and, and television channels and radio channels that target different demographics of the population or target different interest groups. You know, we've got Fox News and whatever. We've got The Independent. They're targeting different demographics or different radio stations that target different age groups. So we see that in the traditional media where because of the editing, which is reasonably transparent, you know, we know that Fox News is going to edit with a particular political view, like The Independent edits with a particular view. We know that the, the country music channel is targeting a particular set of interests. We can accept that because we know that's what they're doing. And if people can self-select, then what we've got is a bunch of competing platforms with different transparent rules and the way they work with these things and we would expect to see rather than having one or two big platforms that do everything we'd start to see lots of smaller platforms catering for different interest groups what we will have though if we if we do the opposite and come with a single set of central rules that say all platforms must adhere to these single sets of common standards and every one of them must do exactly the same thing with their content, then it begs the question as to why we'd have different ones. There's no ability to differentiate between that. First of all, we have to have the question of which content's in and which is out, which is a hugely difficult 
issue to debate when there are so many different views around. And then if we make all of them edit exactly the same way, then there's no need to have the different platforms. So that would increase the centralization and power of the platforms we've got if we look at having a common set of censorship rules. If we Correct. let them do their own thing, though, we would expect that as long as we've got the transparency, we'd see like we do with the radio stations and the newspapers, a lot of variety where people will gravitate to the one that suits their own particular tastes and preferences. And that works on both sides. It's not just about the, the people who want to receive the content. It's also about what advertisers want to advertise on those, those platforms. Someone who wants to target the country music demographic is not going to pay for their ads to be on the same thing as someone else's demographic. The benefit that the big platforms have at the fringes is they can at the moment themselves distinguish the ads between those but we now have to think about the two sides of the platform the appeal to the advertisers to do certain things on the one hand versus the tastes and preferences of the consumers to receive the content on the other yes certainly so um, what I've learned uh, this week is that one of the social media platforms that had gone down at the same time, Bada, is back up. So this is an interesting case for me. So Parler, uh, P-A-R-L-E-R.com is, uh, I think .com, is a social media platform that was hosted on Amazon. And uh, this entire platform was taken down in this January, February period because of the alleged hosting of uh, objectionable content. And this was done by Amazon, uh, which uh, hosted the service. Now, this is interesting because Parler definitely had a contractual arrangement with Amazon. So they were paying them for this. So it's slightly different, I think, in the case of a free user. So Donald Trump was presumably a free free user of Twitter. He had a contractual arrangement, but he, he didn't pay them, so there was no consideration. Um, do you think that that really makes a difference? Of course, Amazon uh, simply said that Paula violated its values, and, and that was it, and I'm sure that they they would actually be able to go to court about this if they wanted to. Well, I guess the issue here is a contract is a contract and it doesn't matter whether you pay money for it or not. It's an agreement of obligations and responsibilities on two sides. So the payment is secondary for the consideration for it if the agreement is there. If, in fact, Parler was aware in advance of what those standards were, then that would have been up to them to make their decisions about what they put up or what they carried. Part of the issue we've got with the, with the social media currently is it's incredibly unclear what is acceptable and what isn't. And you have to actually feel for the platforms because they operate in an international arena. And what might be acceptable in one country or, or one is not or in one demographic of population is certainly not going to be acceptable in others. So they've got a really tricky balancing act here to try and keep everyone happy all of the time. And of course, if one's wanting to look at keeping everyone happy all of the time, then of course the simplest and easiest way to manage that risk is to minimise the amount of dangerous stuff that could possibly be out there. And of course, this is where we move from editing the content to censorship, 
where in fact you choose only to host things that come within a certain um, you know, frame of reference. And if we can think about it like that, then one can cast their cast minds back to perhaps um, in the 1930s when, and certainly not just Germany, but a whole range of countries around the world had particular policies that prevailed in their press that meant some content was acceptable, whether they, they, you know, it was acceptable to have up and some content was not acceptable to have up. If we think about the abdication crisis, there was some willing self-censorship amongst the British publishers, which kept the information about um, about the king's um, private life completely silent, while the different standards applied in the United States and it was fully available. So, so certainly, and that's here, a, there's a long history regarding libel as well uh, and the different standards uh, in the US and the UK where, uh, you know, I don't remember which the, which was the lenient one again, but if it was legally uh, not possible to publish the book in the one you just published in the other one and then shipped the books or, or had people just, just buy them and bring them. So this is not exactly a new thing. Well, no, well, no, it's not news. And, and again, you know, if we think right the way back to the start of the first newspapers in the 1700s, there would have been issues of censorship and editing that went on there as well. And I think what we do have with the media that have gone before is we have seen that commercial imperatives have to a large extent allowed various platforms to cater to the willingness to pay and the willingness to receive of the particular client groups that work for them. And as long as people are aware, then we see the money the money and the eyeballs following the interests. Yes. The, where we get a question of whether we should have something otherwise is whether we should be looking to have certain media that stand above that this public interest journalism that in the say the Australian sense with the case that's going on there at the moment and the legislation there is where public interest journalism at a sufficiently high level is serving a social purpose and therefore should be subject to different standards which is where perhaps we've seen in the past the higher levels of adherence to particular journalistic codes for newspapers for example in order to ensure that there's balance in the coverage when it's curated and edited becomes an issue. So if you are going to curate and edit, then the question of balance comes up, which is separate and distinct from the decisions about what you will or won't carry because it upsets your advertisers or your viewers. Certainly, that's a very different topic. and. I think we'll discuss the Australian uh, business in uh, another podcast, probably, because that's very interesting in itself. But uh, what I think we can say for certain is that the utopian world, which uh, many of us had in mind of the 1990s, uh, that somebody could put something up on the Internet and, and everybody anywhere in the world would be able to read it, that is to a large extent uh, gone. So that idea of um, some kind of absolute absolute uh, freedom of speech 
I think we saw it going already uh, in the case of uh, certain authoritarian countries that very actively uh, select the websites that their citizens are able to access. But it also has to bow to the realities of the commercial world. So if Facebook or Google do business in a country, which means that they take uh, money for ads in that country or have some kind of establishment there, they really have no choice but to uh, bow to the laws of the country. But also, as we think about this, let's not forget that even at the time where we had partisan press catering to different interest groups, we also had other fora like the town square or in London Hyde Park Corner where it was generally accepted that the free speech reigned and you could say whatever you liked and those who went to listen went with the view that they would respect they might not agree with what they heard but they would respect the right of the person to voice what they did within that environment and we can't lose sight in all of this that there still is a need for a place where we do have that freedom of speech respected. Now, if you went to Hyde Park Corner, you could be certain to be assailed by views that you didn't necessarily agree with, but that's part of the deal. That's what that particular site did. And I think that when we're thinking about this issue of what we've got on there, we there's probably room out there to have one of these media that does actually proclaim out of all of these particular choices it makes that it is going to behave in that manner where it will let anything that's legal be transmitted or shared. Because that's what we need for free debate. We need to be able to have the exchange of ideas because otherwise we will just fracture up into our different communities where all we hear is what we want to hear and we won't get confronted with disconforming views and that's not necessarily good for society because it will fracture us into our different interest groups. The town square, Hyde Park Corner, gives that opportunity to bring the debate back to allow the different sides to be able to hear what the others have to say. Certainly, and uh, there have been very interesting developments in the blockchain space with uh, blockchain-based social networks or, let's say, uh, expression uh, fora, uh, because, of course, with a distributed ledger, you cannot really delete parts of it. So it won't work if you delete parts of it. So uh, if you anonymously uh, put a message, which you can, uh, on the Bitcoin blockchain, it really is the, uh, if not forever, at least for a considerable time, because there's nobody to order to take it off. And presumably, you know, with the search engines can be written to search through to find things. And just like we've had with the other social media in our central repository, the same things can be achieved on distributed repositories. Yes. So, frankly, uh, certain platforms will be subject to far more obligations than others. And that is also kind of true of normal life. So uh, you can put what you want on a piece of paper and go stick it on the notice board at the supermarket until somebody takes it off. And uh, that is reasonably anonymous, but what you can do like that cannot be done by a great multinational corporation. And this is where ultimately this issue of transparency becomes important. I think there's less, to, less problem about what's done if 
the parties concerned are clear and open about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Uh, Bronwyn, in closing, um, do you think that, and this might be a difficult question, do you think that uh, Facebook and or Twitter have been clear and transparent about what they've been doing? It's, I think Facebook has had a jolly good attempt to try and be transparent. Um, they've also tried to depoliticize or move responsibility for some of the content to a third party where they set up their um, adjudication panel that's name escapes me at the moment. But basically they have an independent um, board that you can, if you've got content you've put on Facebook that gets edited or treated in a way that you don't agree with, you can appeal to this oversight board and they will look at the case and decide whether Facebook acted fairly or not. I think that's good in the sense that they're trying to create avenues to keep that open. But of course, it's very difficult to make that sort of system work when there's algorithms are the ones that are making the decisions and there are so many hundreds of millions of them that could potentially be made in a day that there's not the capacity to be able to litigate any but the most egregious of errors around that. I think they're trying, but they're caught in just the whole complexity and the bigness of what they're living with. As for the other platforms, um, I'm less familiar with what they might be doing or the positions that they're holding, but it is quite difficult to know what they're doing when in fact the algorithms themselves can change through their own learning to do things differently in ways that it's very difficult to predict. So I think we do have some really interesting gnarly challenges to work out there with what's happening in various areas. Uh, certainly. So Bronwyn, it's uh, been great chatting to you as usual. Um, I want to remind listeners to visit Bronwyn's blog on the American Enterprise Institute website, as well as the website of the Institute for Technology and Network Economics, www.itne.eu. We'll put up a link to Bronwyn's latest blog as well. And uh, Bronwyn, I'm looking forward to chatting again soon about issues related to content because I think it uh, will remain very topical for 2021. It's a very deep pull to mine. Thanks everyone for listening. Have a great day. Thank you, Petrus.